Radiolab is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. If you've ever stepped foot on an American boardwalk, you've likely encountered a deep-fried Oreo, a roller coaster your surprise still functions, and maybe even a hermit crab. This is Radio Lab. I'm Latif Nasser. And I'm Lulu Miller. And today's episode is an ode to the not-so-cute and cuddly creatures. Get out of here, pandas. Don't even come near me, dolphins. Puppies, we want nothing to do with you. get out of here. We're looking Uh, at two of the gnarly ones, the ones that literally poke and bite and and eviscerate. And caw. The first one comes to us from our producer, Rachel Cusick. She originally told it live before an audience at Pop-Up Magazine. Lulu and I were both in that audience in different cities. Picture her in a fantastic purple jumpsuit. And behind her is a huge animation of a Ferris wheel and an Oceanside boardwalk. The first time I saw a hermit crab, I was 11, spending the weekend with my grandpa in Atlantic City. The crab was a boardwalk souvenir tucked inside a shell, painted to look like SpongeBob SquarePants. I didn't know then that that hermit crab wasn't born on a boardwalk, or in a pet store, or a lab. He was snatched from the wild, likely from Indonesia or Central America, and given a one-way ticket to the armpit of New Jersey. Virtually every single hermit crab you've ever seen has been stolen from its home in this way. And that's because no one has figured out how to mass breed hermit crabs in captivity. Not even biologist Chris Tudge. I think I could probably honestly say I've done more work on the reproductive biology of hermit crabs than anybody else pretty much ever. Now, hermit crabs are elusive creatures. They change color and even the shells they call home. They pass through multiple stages and change their shape and their size and the environmental conditions you need for them are really quite specific. I first read about all of this in a science article by Samantha Edmonds in The Outline. She says hermit crabs are hard to study, even harder to breed. A few people tried to reproduce them, but 
none could crack the code of breeding them in large numbers. Partially because we didn't care enough about them to learn. They're not tasty, they're not cute. No one saw enough value in them. But then Mary came along. They say Scaly is the new Fluffy. Who says that? (laughs) I don't know. Mary Akers is an artist who fell into hermit crabs a few years back when her last kid left for college. When I became an empty nester, my three kids had graduated. I said, now I can do what I want to do, right? I was going through menopause. It was kind of like get rid of all that estrogen. I'm 12 again. Mary needed hobbies. She started doing pottery again, and one day a woman in her group said she was looking to offload a hermit crab after her kid lost interest. And I was immediately like, oh, could I? Do I? Will I? I hesitated more because of my husband. Like, and I, and I, didn't, I didn't confess to him right away that I said yes. I said, we're going to crab sit while they go on vacation. Eventually, she came clean to her husband, said she wanted the crab to stay for good. But she quickly realized she didn't know much about how to care for her new pet. And I Googled, and I was like, oh my gosh, they need friends, they need more room, they need sand, they need real food. She learned they can live for decades if cared for properly. And when she realized her own hermit crab was stolen from its home, she felt a profound sense of injustice. Any other creature that lives 50 years, we think of elephants, we think of whales, we think of even the great tortoises, right? We revere, but but we don't do that with hermit crabs. They are literally throwaway pets. These cracks in our world that most of us skip over or never see at all, they suck Mary in. Mary is the child of an alcoholic father, the sister of someone with mental illness, and a nurturing mother of three. She spent her entire life caring for others, hoping she could protect them if she just loved them hard enough. Now, in these hermit crabs, Mary found a new space for her love to fill. So Mary went out and bought more hermit crabs, put them in a tank the size of a grand piano, and declared them the new tenants of her daughter's old bedroom. What is that called? Oh, the, the, the crabs are in their crabitat. Things escalated. Mary watched them run on a hamster wheel for hours. She'd share her leftovers with them and then give them popcorn as a midnight snack. She even named each crab, Artemis, Garbo, Lola, then started learning what made them tick. I've noticed that some of them have personalities where they like either the blingier shells, and I have one that likes the green shell pretty much all the time. Sometimes I know, like, He's going to love that show. Then one day, Mary saw one of her crabs walking funny. And I got my little flashlight, and I shone it in there like, what is that in your sh- What? Do you have a growth? Do you have a tumor? Like, what is that? Well, it was eggs in her shell. And I was like, oh, yeah, baby. That summer, Mary's crabitat morphed into a laboratory one dedicated to delivering these eggs into crabhood, and one that was a daily construction of love. She built a series of pools so the pregnant crab could pick which water she liked best to release her eggs into. Once the eggs hatched, Mary used a turkey baster to swap out the dirty water the crab swam around in. 
changing the metaphorical diaper of thousands of baby crabs. All along the way, Mary lingered above her crabitat, cooing to the babies. And these little guys, I think about it sometimes, have been seeing my big moon face, you know, hovering over them, staring at them. What do they think? Like, is, am I the landscape of their life? Mary would have a few good days, but then the number of babies would plummet. The crab struggles, their needs, they consumed Mary. What am I not giving them, right? That's the recurring refrain in my head. What do they need? What, what am I not giving them? She wanted to smooth out every speed bump life put in their way. Still, the number of babies continued to drop until there were none left. I got to the final stage. That's the closest they get to being a land hermit crab before they're a land hermit crab. She felt gutted, but not wholly defeated. Because the next summer, when one of her crabs waddled with eggs yet again, she got back to work. I had a plan. I had a lot more things I wanted to try. She built a new kind of tank, grew a different seaweed, bought better foods. She even built a ramp inside one of her tanks to simulate a hermit crab's journey from the ocean onto dry land. But far more radically, Mary did something she really, really does not like to do. I had to figure out how to not care so much. I can't be God, I can't be God, I don't want to be God, right? But I can be the ocean. I can be the ocean. That phrase, be the ocean, it became Mary's companion through all this. A little mantra, which uh, sometimes I recite. Every time she found herself wanting to rescue the hermit crabs from some amorphous potential harm, Mary would imagine the vast waters that raise hermit crabs how these microscopic specks managed to float around in the maelstrom and make it out the other side. So I, I would actually agitate them more and move it around and give them like a low tide and a high tide. Today I'm the ocean and today the ocean is dirty and mean. Eventually, the babies grew. They survived major milestones, they formed limbs, and then flew through the water like Superman. And then, one day, Mary watched a single hermit crab pull its body up onto the staircase and break through the border between water and land. I cried. I wept. I wanted a soundtrack playing. Meanwhile, more crabs kept coming. Mary took out a piece of paper and began making a tally mark for each crab that made it to land. And then by, like, day five... It's the March of the Penguins, right? I'm like, oh, God, okay, there's another one, there's another one. By the end of the summer, Mary had added 204 new hermit crabs to the world. <laughs> With a turkey baster and tender loving care, Mary accomplished the impossible. It's been five years since that first hermit crab climbed out of the water in Mary's crabitat. Each year, she breeds a new batch. Some years, she reaches up to 700 crabs. She's bred so many hermit crabs that now she adopts them out, making sure they go to responsible homes. Learning about all of this, I wondered why it was Mary who could figure out this thing and scientists couldn't. 
It was the question Chris Tudge asked himself too. Remember Chris? He's the guy who should have figured out what Mary did but couldn't. Late one night, he found himself reading Mary's blog where she'd been documenting her entire breeding process. And by the end of it, my, my first impression was, oh my God, she actually did it. The thing Chris found most impressive was Mary's ability to be the ocean. It's just stunning. You know, you have to keep the waste levels down, you have to keep the oxygen up, the light levels have to be right. The oceans are constantly changing entity. And here she was reproducing the ocean in little tiny bowls. Why is it so hard to recreate? Like, what, what about it is hard to copy? The chaos. In the same piece of ocean, there's millions of other species who are trying to do the same thing that need slightly different conditions. So the chaos is benefiting everybody a little bit. That turbulence Mary originally resisted, it's the very thing Chris said the crabs needed to survive. I like to think these hermit crabs gave Mary the chaos she needed to survive too. I could literally all day, every day, do nothing but try to get it perfect. But that's not best for the crabs. That's definitely not best for me. So it's a balance of how much do I allow myself to feel responsible. If you share your life with another creature, a hermit crab, a human, I think this is the maddening fact we're faced with every day, that our love can only do so much. You're not responsible for everyone. You're not responsible for saving everyone. I wanted to save my dad. I can't save my dad. I was a kid, you know? My kids, letting go. Like, life for me, my lesson has always been just... Let go, Mary. Let them be crabs. Thank you. Producer Rachel Cusick. Uh, we should add real quick, Mary and Chris actually struck up a friendship after Rachel interviewed them for this story. Mary sends Chris photos of her crabs under the microscope. Chris regularly presents at Mary's annual hermit crab conference. CrabCon. Uh, he, he even started up a few of projects in his lab inspired by Mary's online hermit crab society. It's beautiful. Now, When we come back, we are going to go even deeper into that strange relationship between crabs and chaos and ask if it's not just that crabs that need chaos to be born, like that was the secret ingredient the hermit crabs needed, but does chaos need a crab? Or like, want a crab? Sort of. You'll see. The scientists are going to straighten it out. Stick with us. Don't scuttle away. Radiolab is supported by Cozy Earth. When you think about summer comfort, words like breezy or soft maybe come to mind. With Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding and loungewear, you'll get the comfort of home wherever you roam, allowing you to elevate your summer getaway no matter where or even if you're getting away. Cozy Earth bedding is temperature regulating and made from top-notch materials, including viscose from bamboo that can turn any living or sleeping space into a sanctuary of luxury and comfort. Their loungewear and pajamas offer you their signature level of comfort while maintaining an elegant fit so you can look cute and be comfy even if you're taking a long flight or car trip. 
Cozy Earth provided an exclusive offer for Radiolab listeners. Get 35% off site-wide when you use the code Radiolab at www.cozyearth.com. That's 35% off at CozyEarth.com, code Radiolab. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Radiolab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about hustle culture. You know, the whole rise and grind, go big or go home thing. It's a lifestyle that may not be for you, but one that your money can handle thanks to Betterment. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. How? Their automated technology optimizes your investments again and again. With Betterment, your money is taking ice baths at 5 a.m. while you get your well-deserved rest. Your money downs protein smoothies and automatically reinvests your dividends all before you head out the door. Your money is a workaholic, but you don't have to be because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Radio Lab. Latif. Lulu. Crabs. Hi. Hello. <laughs> so on to our next layer awesome. of the crab cake, our next crab story. We are here with this Harvard crab scientist, Dr. Joe Wolf. Am I allowed to say any, like, <clears throat> swear words? Oh. <laughs> I should not do that, right? You can. Okay. And she probably should because she recently uncovered something effing bonkers about crabs that I have been dying to talk about on the radio. So excited about this, Joe. Yeah, awesome. So the whole thing starts with this kind of dry scientific crafting project. Okay. Joe, along with her colleagues, Heather Brackham Grissom and... Hello, hello. Oh. Javier Luque wanted to take all the crabs in the world and just make a massive crab family tree. The crab tree of life. So to actually build this crab family tree, they're not taking photos and scrapbooking. They're taking DNA. They sequence the DNA from hundreds of different crabs. Dungeness crabs. Snow crabs. The coconut crab. They've got... Chesapeake Bay blue crabs. Porcelain crabs. They look more like a lobster. Are lobsters crabs? No, lobsters are not crabs. Okay. Lobsters are lobsters. Okay, sorry. They're hairy crabs, mud crabs, tree crabs. Trees? They're tree crabs? Yeah. What? In my head, crabs go with water. You're telling me crabs can live in trees? Yeah. Amazing. So they're putting all this data into some super powerful computer. And when they're done, they press a button. And they're watching this computer build this tree. Branches and branches and crabs and crabs. And it, it would have been great if it was like that, but no, it was, it was less, less dramatic. It was more like... You put all your data in, you press a button, and you wait. For a pretty long time. For like months. Whoa. The computer takes a while to do its thing. And then you get the email, and it's like, your analysis is finished. And, and it is shortly after that that they realize crabs have evolved five separate times. What does that mean? 
like on five completely different branches from creatures that are not crabs, five different times, the crab form has evolved. It's just like, it's like, bloop, here's a crab over here. Bloop, here it is over there. Bloop, whoa, way over there. And the thing that you're saying, and it's the, sh- it's the body shape is what we're talking about. So it's like this body shape came up again and again. A pancake, and, and, a pancake hmm. with 10 legs, two of which, at least two of which have pinchers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That these multiple different lineages that start from things that are kind of different turn out to look kind of the same. <laughs> That's just weird, right? This is why I called Joe, Because when she published that paper, the internet freaked out. Creatures that are not related to crabs are eventually evolving into crab-like shapes. People are making TikToks. So we're talking like shrimp and lobster and other crustaceans. All of them are evolving into similar forms. There were... Be hurtful, I could be purple, I could evolve into a crab. Songs. I could be crab, I could be crab. It seemed to open this speculative trap door. My first thought is, when are when am I going to be a crab? You know, when are wolves going to be crabs, right? I mean, literally tens of thousands of likes and comments. Everything is slowly turning into a crab. That were converging around a pretty similar interpretation, which was honestly the one that I had, which was basically, does evolution want a crab? Mm. Is it just like right for life. What this also means is that statistically speaking, there are space crabs out there somewhere in the universe. I think crabs might be Mother Nature's favorite shape. I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, it's such a surprise to me that it became a meme. Okay. Now, okay, not to like denigrate the scientists who like put a lot of, I think it's super fascinating sort of the evolutionary tree that they're building. The crab appearing five times? Like, I, like, I don't know. I don't, I don't see it as like a profound thing. Five times out of how many times? Like of, out of how many things that are being created? Like, is it, is it so crazy that like bats fly and birds fly and they figure out how to do that separately? Or like, like giraffes have long necks, but also brachiosauruses had long necks. Or like <laughs> worms are like long and stringy and snakes are long and stringy. Like you're like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, it makes sense. Like with the crabs, I don't know. It doesn't seem so much crazier than all the other stuff. Okay. But like you're talking about a neck or a wing, like one body part, one nifty adaptation. With the crabs, it's like this whole complex situation. You've got multiple limbs, some of which have pinchers and a little pancake body and googly eyes and you often walk (laughs) sideways. It's like a very bizarre beast that keeps rising from the ocean again and again and again and again and again. Right. And so inaccurate, wild speculations aside about what that means for all life, where all life is heading, um, a real scientific question remains, which is why does it keep reappearing? Like, what does the crabby shape actually help you with? What does it give you? Yeah, right, right. So what is it good for? So Javier Luque has thought a lot about this, and he said that scientists think a very important clue lies in this one moment about a hundred million years ago. It was a world that was warming up. It became really, really hot. The temperature of the globe rose several degrees. 
the poles melted. So it raised also the sea level several hundred meters. And those floodings also made very shallow seas that can get into the land. It was a moment that looked eerily like the one we're entering now. And like now, a bunch of species began dying off. Some lobsters and shrimp dwindled. Because they just couldn't survive all that change. But crabs... They radiated and bursted all over the world. And scientists think that that goofy, leggy, complex body shape is what allowed crabs to MacGyver their way into surviving. They can use their body as a Swiss Army knife with a bunch of different tools. So the legs, you know, they can scuttle on land, of course, but they can also swim or fight or grab prey. Some of those legs grab a sea urchin, an anemone, and just use them as hats and camouflage themselves. Whoa! And that sleek little pancake body, it helps them hide from predators way better than, say, lobsters with that big honking tail to grab. And then there are all these subtler parts we don't really see, like these incredible gill-like things that allow them to breathe in both air and water, which lets them live, like, anywhere. They can live underwater. They can live on beaches. They can live in marshes. They can live in rocky shores. They can live in trees. So that... Like, How do they climb the tree? That's the thing I don't understand. I mean, I don't know, dude. If you've got 10 legs, it makes it a little easier, right? But and they're so like little. Like, they can't clip. hug the tree. Like, they don't... What, how yeah, do you get purchase on there? but if you weigh nothing, there? you just, like... You, then you just... Like, how do beetles climb tree? Why does every bug climb a tree? Because it has 100 legs and it weighs nothing. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry. That's good. No, it's I'm a like good argument. I'm, like, angry at you, but I actually don't have... I'm, like, duh, but I don't know why. <laughs> okay, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> But let me just lay on the grand point here. The scientists think that what the crab body plan actually gets you, the reason it keeps evolving again and again, is that its niche, the thing it is particularly good at, is change. Hmm. Upheaval. Chaos. Which Javier thinks will give crabs an edge in whatever world we humans are making for all of us. If we keep the world as we are going, we are going to be gone from here in the not-so-distant future, but crabs might start becoming more creative and using things and playing with sticks. Who knows? Give enough time, they might become the next us. So give enough time, we probably won't become crabs. We'll more likely become obsolete and the crabs will keep surviving. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> This episode was reported by Rachel Cusick and Lulu Miller and produced by Becca Bressler with help from McKetty Foster Keys. With mixing help from Ariane Wack. It was edited by Pat Walters, who would love us all to take a brief hiatus on pitching crab stories. Yeah. No promises, Walters. <laughs> no promises. <laughs> Rachel's pop-up magazine piece had live music by Minichoy and the Magic Magic Orchestra with sound design by Jeremy Bloom. Special thanks to Heather Bracken Grissom and her crab lab at Florida International University, Franz Anthony, and the entire team at Pop-Up Magazine, Randy Rochon, Jen Pachenik, Renee Brody, Samantha Edmonds, whose story from the outline introduced us to Mary. 
Stay tuned, because coming up next, we're ditching the claws, and we're going to take flight. Stay crabby. (laughs) Hi, this is Finn calling from Stores, Connecticut. Leadership support for Radiolab science programming is provided by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative, and the John Templeton Foundation. Foundational support for Radiolab was provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Radiolab is supported by Cozy Earth. When you think about summer comfort, words like breezy or soft maybe come to mind. With Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding and loungewear, you'll get the comfort of home wherever you roam, allowing you to elevate your summer getaway no matter where or even if you're getting away. Cozy Earth bedding is temperature regulating and made from top-notch materials, including viscose from bamboo that can turn any living or sleeping space into a sanctuary of luxury and comfort. Their loungewear and pajamas offer you their signature level of comfort while maintaining an elegant fit so you can look cute and be comfy even if you're taking a long flight or car trip. Cozy Earth provided an exclusive offer for Radiolab listeners. Get 35% off site-wide when you use the code RADIOLAB at www.cozyearth.com. That's 35% off at cozyearth.com, code RADIOLAB. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Radio Lab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited-time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. All right, we're going to begin at a golf course wedding venue, sort of, with our contributing editor and resident ER doctor, Avir Mitra. Parsi time. Now, one thing you need to know at the jump of this story is that Avir was raised in part in this religion uh, that is mostly practiced in South Asia called Zoroastrianism. Um, In in particular, Indian Zoroastrians are called Parsis. It's not a big religion, uh, less than 200,000 followers, um, but a fair number of them happen to be here in South Jersey. They rent out this space once a month to socialize, read scripture, eat tons of homemade Indian food. But this time, Avir, we, we did not send him there for that. Oh, grab some snackies. Although it sounds like he did do some of that. <laughs> okay. So I'll have to be sticking this in your face. I hope you don't mind. This time, he was there to talk with his priest. My name is Karas Desai. About the mystery of what happens after you die. But not at all in the way that you think. I'm Lulu. And I'm Latif. This is Radiolab. Uh, and we should mention that this episode does deal with death, and there are a few brief graphic descriptions. 
as well as a couple swear words. Please listen with care. All right, here's Avir. Every time I tell people about how we, I guess, our burial, well, it's not even, I don't know what the word is, not burial. Disposal of the dead. Yeah, I get a lot of weird looks. Why? I mean, <sighs> well, maybe you could tell me what, what is our method of disposal of bodies? The method of disposal is exposure. Exposure? Mm. What does that mean? We take our dead to this place called the Tower of Silence. The Tower of Silence? I've been to one in Mumbai. It's this hill in the middle of this big bustling city, but when you get there, it's like just this super forested, quiet area. It almost feels like a jungle. It's so dense. And at the top of it, there's a flat, like, cement slab in a circle that's open to the sky. Okay. And... There's walls around it, but there's no roof on it. And there's different layers to it. The adult men go on the outer edge of this cement slab. Women will go in the middle, and children, if they die, will go near the center. And there's thousands of vultures surrounding this place, just waiting. Whoa. The vultures would ring the whole walls all the way, all the way around. And hundreds of them. And then after the body was left, the vultures would descend in that. And yeah, the vultures just devour the body. And within a few hours, all that's left is just a few bones. Whoa. Yeah, we call it a sky burial. And I don't know, I just think it's incredible. Like, in in the religion, the idea is that the second someone dies, there's a corpse demon called Nasu. Hmm. And... They believe that that demon is what starts to cause the decay of the body. And so, you know, when the vultures eat the body, they're essentially protecting us from this demon. Mm. So that's one thing. There's also a more practical reason. If you were to bury the body, that's sort of polluting the earth, which they don't want to do. If they burn the body, that's polluting the sky. And they felt that if the vultures eat the body, it recycles it back into nature. So these people were like environmentalists. Yes. They were the original environmentalists. That's amazing. It's pretty metal. It's beautiful. I I agree. And that's the way it is. That's the way it's been for thousands and thousands of years up until 2006. This one Parsi woman named Dunbaria, her mom died. Mm. And she had this suspicion. Is my mom in the clear? Hmm. Has her body been consumed? So she sneaks up into the tower, climbs up to the top, and what she saw there was completely horrendous. She felt like she had to tell the world. This is CNN IBM. Photographs from inside the Towers of Silence, where the Parsi community in Mumbai disposes of its dead. These forbidden photographs are creating big ripples in the small community. There's just bodies. Bloated, rotting bodies, disfigured bodies. Oh, that's horrifying. Just kind of plopped around that area. And where you'd normally just see hundreds of vultures at the Tower of Silence, you don't see a single one. The bodies were left to decompose in the Tower of Silence because there were not enough vultures to to clean the body, pick Mm. the body clean. The vultures are just gone. At the Tower? like everywhere. Millions of vultures all over town, all over the state, all over India, 
almost overnight, they're all gone. Wow. Okay, so the question is, where the heck did they all go? Yeah, that's the mystery. Which brings us... When species are in dire straits... To this guy. We wear our cape, we swing through the jungles and the forests, and we, we save the day, right? A man by the name of Munir Varani. Here we go. He's a Kenyan biologist who studies birds. And back in the late 90s, he worked for the Peregrine Fund, which is this organization that basically saves birds of prey. And he had just gotten married. So he's at his new home in Nairobi just a couple weeks into his marriage. The telephone rang. It was Rick. His boss at the Peregrine Fund. And he said, well, I'm calling you because I wanted to find out uh, how do you feel about going to India? So he tells his wife, this whole marriage thing's been great. I'm really excited about all this stuff. I got to go. So off I went. He flies from Kenya to India, gets off the plane at Mumbai. And one of the first things he does is he starts walking around this park. It's like a tiger reserve. And I remember distinctly this big banyan tree, which is a ficus tree. It's a tree of religious significance in, in Hindu culture. It's like a tree of life and type thing. And what he sees are like... At least 17 vultures that were lying sort of, you know, stomach down, wings spread out. You mean they were dead? They were all dead. They were dead. 17 dead vultures oh, underneath of oh. it. Oh, what a stark, like, image. What a metaphor. Just the tree of life and then all this death. Yeah. And this makes no sense to Manir because vultures are supposed to be super tough animals. Hmm. Tough like how? I mean, they literally eat dead things, you know? The great thing about living things is they're pretty healthy, you know? <laughs> they're healthy enough to be alive. Yeah. And so right. I want to get some of that, you know? <laughs> Whatever right. you got going right. on, I want to put in my belly. Right. But mm -hmm. if you died, something went wrong with you. And now I'm just going to make you part of me, essentially, by eating you. That's a bold move. But secondly, the second you die, you know, all these bacteria, viruses, and fungi that you've been keeping at bay by being alive and having an immune system, you know, now all of a sudden they start taking over. So the way the vultures survive this is they have a super acidic stomach. It's up to 100 times more acidic than our stomachs. It's like battery acid stomach. Yeah, exactly. Like they can eat anything and it just melts away. Wow. Some species also piss and shit acid, okay, <laughs> onto themselves. Poop boots. Yeah, poop boots. <laughs> because that keeps the bugs away. It's a little chemical defense? Exactly. Wow. And if someone tries to eat the vulture... Some species have evolved this response to just vomit acid on the predator. Wow, that is gnarly. Yeah. And it turns out that all of this is so important because if you think about it, they're basically gobbling up all the diseases and bacteria, rabies, anthrax, all these things. Um, and it stops with them. Like they're the end of the line. They're like nature's immune system. Rad. Yeah, that's a superpower. And they play such an important role that a bird just keeps evolving to become a vulture. Whoa. This happened four times independently on Earth that we know of, like just across the world. Like, you know what I mean? It's almost like if I came out with like Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd or something. Like <laughs> I wrote that album and then someone else also wrote that album and like four people across the country just wrote that same album. Why is that your metaphor? I love that. <laughs> That's a metaphor. really weird metaphor. And so going back to Muneer looking at this banyan tree, 
it's super weird that there's all these dead vultures underneath it. And it gets even more puzzling because these vultures are not like old, decrepit, you know, vultures. And it doesn't look like someone shot them. You know, they didn't like get electrocuted in a power line or something like. The birds were in great body condition. They had a lot of body fat. There's just no reason for these birds to be dead. Huh. This was like solving a detective, like a murder mystery. So Munir's on the case. And what he needs is to get some dead vultures over to a lab in the U.S. Okay. So he goes to India and he's a young whippersnapper and he's like, This is what we need to do. We need to get permits to send tissue samples so that people around the world can look at them. India's like, Very fast. No, you can't take these tissue samples. Why are they worried about that? Yeah. You know, it just kind of got tied up in red tape because, you know, India doesn't want people taking their natural products and animals and seeds and wildlife and, you know, making money off of it. Okay. And by the time he's trying to negotiate with the Indian government, the vultures have already started dying off at an incredibly rapid rate. Like, in India, 95% of vultures are already dead. Oh, my God. That is serious. I mean, that is like a just, that's insane. It is. And so he's like, shit, like, what do I do now? So he goes to Nepal, tries again, same thing. They say no. And so he decides he's going to go to Pakistan, a neighboring country, and see if he can get some dead vultures there. But I look in the skies and there are thousands of vultures. And I mean thousands. Wow. Hmm. You come across a dead buffalo or a cow and there are maybe 200 vultures that are trying to get into it. But, is it, but isn't it bad because the vultures don't seem to be dying over there, so Ooh. you may miss the problem? There's a twist. We're still finding a few dead vultures. Oh. And they're showing the exact clinical signs. They should not be dead, right? He's there right before it happens. It's almost like he gets to rewind time just a little bit. Wild. So he's like, oh, this is perfect. Like, okay, this is where we should work, right? But of course, the question lies, are we going to get tissue samples out of that country? He goes to the main guy in Pakistan, the bureaucrat who's going to give him permission. And he's like, all right, I got to change my approach. So how am I going to do this? First of all, the India-Pakistan cricket series was going on, right? And as people know, there's a big rivalry between India and Pakistan. He looks at me and he says, Munir, you want me to give you a permit to export tissue samples? Uh, give me one reason why I should give you that. And I said, Dr. Khalid, mm -hmm. If you don't give us this permit, then the Indians will beat you to it. <gasps> he bluffs. He bluffs. Boom. I just knew I had him. Oh. <laughs> so they gave us permits to export tissue samples. <laughs> wow. Go near. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so off we started. They get together a group of young research assistants and basically had them pick up these dead vultures and cut them open. And what they see is striking. The inner organs were covered with a white chalky paste. Does that look like toothpaste? Like, what does it look like? There's like powder, white powder, all over the, the liver, the heart, the lungs, everywhere. Can you wipe it off? Like, it's literally yeah. a substance. Yeah, exactly. Weird. Weird. So he goes to his senior colleague, this guy, Lindsay Oaks. Mm -hmm. Oaks takes one look, and he's like, oh, I know what that is. It's kidney failure. Huh? What? It turns out that if you shut down a vulture's kidneys, all this stuff backs up, turns into a paste, 
and gets deposited in all the organs. What stuff? What that stuff is, yeah. is uric acid. Oh, uh, bird shit. Which is bird pee, bird shit. It's the stuff that's making their pee and poop so acidic. They can't pee it out. And so now so it goes up. It's, just, it's just depositing <gasps> in their joints, in their organs. Oh my God. And you die. Wow. So now they know, like, what's killing the vultures is kidney failure. But no one knows what's causing the kidney failure. As this story is progressing, the situation's escalating and people are starting to get spooked. So it is happening in Pakistan, too. Yes, it's happening mm. really quick. Like when he first got there, there were 3,000 nesting vultures. And the next year, it was half that. And the year after that, it was half that again. And four years in, they're down to just 400 nesting vultures. Yeah. Just like that. So the leading theory at this time yeah. is that this is a virus, oh, right? Because okay. look, it started in Southeast Asia. So they're thinking, okay, maybe going east to west, this virus is spreading. Southeast Asia, Nepal, India. And if this virus moves further west into Pakistan, Afghanistan, into the Middle East, and comes into Africa, where vultures play such an important role, the consequences would be completely dire. Remember, these vultures are like nature's immune system. They perform probably the most important role than any other animal or groups of animals combined. Like if we don't have them digesting all this bacteria, diseases and viruses, who knows what's gonna happen to the entire world. So we're really fighting against time. You know, just to step back, we know they're dying of kidney failure. Now, what's causing the kidney failure? In theory, it could be any number of things. It could be a virus. It could be bacteria, fungi. It could be environmental changes. It could be toxins. And so people are testing for this and that, and they're just not finding anything. Mm. And then in 2001, Munir and his colleague, Lindsay Oakes. We were in a meeting in Spain. They're at some sort of bird conference. And VultureCon. VultureCon, exactly. <laughs> They're in their head-to-toe vulture yep. costumes. <laughs> I, I can picture it. I can picture it. And you know, this is not a great year for VultureCon. Everyone's covered in talcum powder. <laughs> and I remember Lindsay and I sitting in the square in Sevilla, sipping espressos. So Lindsay's like, let's just start from scratch here. You know, let's get a piece of paper. They pull out a, like a napkin and just start writing on the napkin. We were like kids just putting down these flow diagrams, right? Okay. What do we know? Kidney failure. What can cause kidney failure. Toxins, nothing. Viruses, nothing. And then Munir says, Lindsay asks this question. He said, okay. That kind of cracks the whole thing open. What's going into the vultures? So I was like, well, food. Generally cattle, right? Livestock. And so Lindsay's like, we've been focusing so much on what goes into the vultures. Mm. Have we seen what's going into the livestock? Huh. So... They take a new approach. They go back to Pakistan and they start going around to different villages and just knocking on people's doors, being like, hi, um, I have a bunch of questions for you about your cattle, you know? Mm -hmm. And as they're processing the surveys, they're noticing like, oh, this phrase keeps popping up over and over again. It just stood out. We give them... Diclofenac. Diclofenac. Huh. Yeah, this drug diclofenac. It's actually a painkiller. It's in this class of drugs called NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. 
that includes, you know, drugs like Advil, Motrin, Aleve, ibuprofen. Hmm. And these farmers were giving diclofenac to cattle because cattle, just like people, you know, get old, get aches and pains. Mm -hmm. They wake up one morning and their knees hurt. If your cow had a limp and was unable to carry the produce to market, you just pumped it with diclofenac. You just did. And even after the cow gets like too old to pull your cart or whatever, the farmers, a lot of times, at least the Hindu ones, would still give them diclofenac because they're seen as sacred animals. Half of me is Zoroastrian. The other half of me is Hindu. So Hindus, you know, they don't eat cows. I mean, I do eat beef, but don't <laughs> tell my grandma or whatever. Um, I'll never forget. I was like in eighth grade and I was like telling my grandma who doesn't speak much English and I don't speak much Bengali. She's like, we don't eat cow. And I was like, yeah, I do. Cause I love burgers. <laughs> that That's made of cow. And she's like, no, no, it's not. You don't eat cow. So then I called my dad into the room. I was like, dad, aren't burgers made out of cows? And he just straight up was like, no. And just walked out of the room. <laughs> and, for, and I was like confused for like five years after that as a child. So anyway, Munir and the team realized that farmers are giving their cattle this drug, this painkiller, diclofenac. So they take some organs, send them to the U.S. and test for levels of the drug. And sure enough, all the vultures that were covered in that chalky white paste came back positive. Huh. Huh. And so suddenly a pattern was evolving. But that's still not a... I feel like we've gotten... You've connected the dots, but it's the dot that needs to be connected. It's Now it's in the vulture, but it, we don't know for sure it's causing the sickness. I love that you said that, Latif, because we see diclofenac in the vultures that are dead, but is that the reason that they're dead? And so now we have to show that experimentally. So this is where things have to get really dark. Oh, this story has been just a fun fetty cake <laughs> until now. <laughs> yeah. So I told you, you know, vultures dying left and right. Munir and his team studying these vultures. They see all these poor baby vultures. These were birds that fell off the nests after their parents died. Mm-hmm. And so they have been, over time, sort of sheltering some of these baby vultures and raising them. And giving mm -hmm. them what? To feed, like, little dead rats? Yeah, little dead rats, all little, you know, whatever. Like dead chickens. Bougie vultures. Okay. <laughs> these, these vultures are doing great. And they realize the only way that they can don't really— Don't tell me. Yeah. Keep telling me. Going. Say it. I, I don't know where you're going. Where, where are you going? The only way they can really prove— for sure, if diclofenac kills vultures, is to poison their babies. Oh, uh, okay. They swapped out their perfect Whole Foods meals with some buffalo that had been given diclofenac. And um, they died. And on top of that, they realized all the vultures died in India first because the drug was approved there like four years before it was approved in Pakistan. Whoa. Oh. So it wasn't an ecological spread. It was a market spread that they were seeing. It was seeing, a market spread. Like Whoa. wash across the continent. That's wild. Yeah. It was amazing. It just, it, it felt like a huge burden had been lifted off my back. And so in May, 2003, Munir and his team go back to VultureCon, and Lindsay Oaks gets up on stage and announces it. With his very soft voice, and he just talks about the meticulous 
Here's what we studied. Here's what we found. Here's what we did to our pet vultures. Here's what happened. And then there was pin drop silence. And then there was this applause that just went on and didn't stop. And people stood up. They all realized, like, this is it. I guess I'm just wondering, was there any parallel with where, where U.S. vultures I dying th- off? Yeah, I think the difference is, like, we don't care as much about cows in the U.S. Oh, so they're not living—oh, so they're not—we're le- eating the meat, so the vultures aren't getting it. Right. We just eat them when they're, like, <sighs> right, right, young right, and healthy right, right, before they have any problems. It's so weird that this is about, like, caring for the cow makes you want to, like, make the cow not be in pain, which then surprisingly apparently kills all the vultures. Yeah, it's weird. And, you know, as a doctor, I can kind of relate to that. I prescribe these NSAID drugs like ibuprofen, Motrin, Aleve, Advil. You know, I prescribe these all the time. And believe it or not, one of the most common causes of kidney injury in humans is also NSAIDs. Really? Yeah. Which is funny, right? Because, like, we were looking at these vultures saying like, oh, that's so bizarre that this diclofenac is messing up their kidneys. Meanwhile, in a different parallel universe of medicine, because we're not talking to, I don't talk to vulture biologists. They don't talk to me, right? Like we're <laughs> figuring the same thing out in humans. Wow. wow. Wait, so when was it like, yeah, when did, when did humans become, really or when did bad. we become aware of this? Yeah, it does. There were case studies coming out all along the way. Yeah. But the landmark study was in the year 1999. Okay. okay. So interesting, right? Because right like the, the vulture s- thing is happening at the same yeah, time. Yeah. And we've also learned that they can cause intestinal bleeding, strokes, heart attacks. All these problems trickle down from the use of NSAIDs. Whoa, why? Yeah. Basically, you know, NSAIDs are inhibiting this molecule that cause pain. And so you take them and you don't feel pain, which is great. But it turns out that these same molecules do a lot of really important stuff in the body. And so when you inhibit them, you you know, you know cause all these other problems that no one anticipated when we made these drugs. I Okay, I have a million questions, but I'm going to just cut to the chase. Like, we take these drugs all the time, all of us. Like, wh- should we stop taking these drugs? No. <laughs> That's what I want. No, I don't want to scare you into thinking, like, these are evil drugs. They're great drugs. They work really great. But they're not candy. Hmm. The way we think about it in the hospital as a short, as a quick, like, thing is, like, if you're over 65 and taking these drugs every single day for months on end, like, see a doctor. Let's figure something out for you. Oh, interesting. Okay. If you're young, like, don't worry about this. If you're healthy, don't worry about this. And in general, don't freak out about this at all. But this is more of a macro scale, you know? Hmm. Like, I just see there being a vulture-faced reaper who's like, oh, you're trying to avoid pain? Oh, you're trying to avoid death? Like, it's, like, like if, you, if, you, if you budge it over here, it's going to budge right back over there, you know? Mm-hmm. That's how it feels to me. As like a doctor, it's very frustrating because, you know, yeah. what am I supposed to do? And, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep taking these meds. I'm going to keep giving these meds. They work. They do, they, they right. do help people a lot. Right. Right. But, yes, like you said, Lutz, there's, a, there's a little cost there. Yeah. Or, I mean, I guess a big cost if you're one of those unlucky 
people who get sick and, and dies from the drug. Yeah. Or, I guess, if you're a vulture. Well, the vultures are doing okay, actually. Scientists found an alternative drug for the cows, and India, Pakistan, and Nepal, they all got together and actually banned diclofenac for veterinary use. Wow. Okay. And the populations of vultures stabilize. So that's that story. Huh. Does that, what does that mean for the Tower of Silence? Is it, is it back? Uh, no, not exactly. Because, you know, these vultures only have like one offspring per year. Oof. So it's a slow process, you know. Huh. So what are Zoroastrians doing in the meantime when they, when they lose somebody? So, yeah, for Parsis, it's still rough. Um, they started by trying to use chemicals that they would put on the bodies to help them decompose faster. Another thing they considered was putting a big uh, sun glass, like basically think of like a magnifying glass where you like, if you're a kid, you like burn ants yeah, with a magnifying glass. Yeah, this feels dangerous. So they're, they're, they're thinking about that. We have to sit, here, sit over here. Eventually, I started wondering, well, what about you? When you die, what do you want to do? What does my mom want? Well, since there are no vultures anymore, which I actually think is a great idea, but since there aren't any vultures left, um, I would prefer to be cremated or uh, the new green burial thing. You know, I wouldn't mind if a tree grew using my body. But when my mom said that, I kind of thought, like, wait a minute. Like, no. Like, I thought the whole point was that the only way to get to heaven was to go through the Tower of Silence. Oh, yeah. The Orthodox believe that they won't go to heaven if their bodies are disposed of except in the Tower of Silence. But, my priest says... As far as I'm concerned, they're, they're, they're daft. They're nuts. There's no vultures right now. So the Tower of Silence is off the table. My father died in, in hospital in Boston, and we had his body cremated. He, had, he himself had said that, look, if I die, don't, don't have my body shipped back to India. Have it cremated over here. You don't go to heaven or hell depending on how your body's disposed of. I mean, who cares? Once, you, once you're dead, you're dead. I mean, who you? But you're sort of a rebellious priest. I'm not a rebellious priest. I'm here. I just think for myself. He says he's just being practical. Which is what Parsis do. Which is what Parsis do. What, what, what they should do. <laughs> the whole reason our religion created the Tower of Silence in the first place is because it was practical, simple, elegant. And now it's not. Until the vultures come back, anyway. Cool. Thank you. I don't have anything else. You're very welcome. I'm glad to have uh, an uncle that knows everything about everything. <laughs> Stop calling me uncle for crying out loud. It makes me feel old and decrepit. <laughs> <laughs> Contributing editor, Avir Mitra. That's our show for this week. This episode was reported by Avir Mitra with help from Sindhunyama Sambandan. It was produced by Sindhunyana Sambandan with music and sound design by Jeremy Bloom with mixing help by Ariane Wack. It was edited by a rebellious editor, Pat Walters, who has been known to think for himself and to occasionally spit battery acid urine when, when attacked. Watch out for that one. Special thanks to... Daniel Solomon, Heather Natola, and the Raptor Trust in New Jersey, and Avir's uncle, Hashang Mola, who told him about this story over Thanksgiving dinner. It's how the reporting gets done over mashed potatoes and stuffing and not hamburgers, because Avir doesn't eat ham burgers. Uh, I'm Lula Miller. I'm Latif. 
Let us know if you want us to include vulture poop boots in our next round of merch. <laughs> That's it. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you, for Vulture. Bye-bye. Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, Akedi Foster-Keys, W. Harry Fortuna, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sindhu Nyanasambandan, Matt Kilty, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Sarah Kari, Anna Rascuet Paz, Sarah Sandback, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster, with help from Andrew Vinales. Our fact-checkers are Diane Kelly, Emily Krieger, and Natalie Middleton. This is Joel Mosbacher calling from New York City. Leadership support for Radio Lab's science programming is provided by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Science Sandbox Assignments Foundation Initiative, and the John Templeton Foundation. Foundational support for Radio Lab was provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Radio Lab is supported by Cozy Earth. When you think about summer comfort, words like breezy or soft maybe come to mind. With Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding and loungewear, you'll get the comfort of home wherever you roam, allowing you to elevate your summer getaway no matter where or even if you're getting away. Cozy Earth bedding is temperature regulating and made from top-notch materials, including viscose from bamboo that can turn any living or sleeping space into a sanctuary of luxury and comfort. Their loungewear and pajamas offer you their signature level of comfort while maintaining an elegant fit so you can look cute and be comfy even if you're taking a long flight or car trip. Cozy Earth provided an exclusive offer for Radiolab listeners. Get 35% off site-wide when you use the code RADIOLAB at www.cozyearth.com. That's 35% off at cozyearth.com, code RADIOLAB. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth.